Good morning. Good to see you all. We awake, everybody? <clears throat> well, we uh, are going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. We've got a very weighty subject today. Uh, you know, lust and adultery were light fair last week. So now we get to come to, to a text about divorce and remarriage uh, this week. And it's a weighty subject, and uh, so I want to make sure that we, and we've got a lot of ground to cover, so let me do one bit of housekeeping before we kind of dive in. Um, one is, I want to say to these at home and those here, just a reminder, congregational meeting next Sunday night. So we do that twice a year. If you're a member, if you're not a member, you're welcome to come. If you're a member, we need you to come because we're going to vote on things like the budget and new elders and new nominating committee. So some things that are really important to the life of our church in terms of guiding us forward and people being put in places of authority. Uh, so we need you to come and be participating with us in that. You've been seeing us advertise about that and put names of elders forward so that you might see them and assess them. And if you know of anything that would disqualify them to bring that forward to us as a church, that's part of our process uh, of seriously vetting anyone who sits in authority in this church. And so I just want to remind you of that. That's next Sunday, 6 p.m. So please do make a plan to be there, particularly if you are a member, so you can be part of the, the life and business of the church. Well, I said that we come to a weighty subject today in Matthew 5, and this is another great example of why we as a church make it our practice to just move systematically through the Word of God, because if you were going to skip passages, this would be one you would skip, because you would just be like, this is too hard, it's too heavy. The emotional freight and the weightiness of this text are there. Right? There's no pain like the pain of marital pain and, and the pain of divorce. Would you guys agree? It's uniquely uniquely painful. And so friends, here's what I want to say to you. It's, this is challenging for a number of reasons. One is that emotional freight and that weightiness. And I just want you to know we, we see that pain. All right? We are not ignorant to that. I don't get up here to preach to you today just to give you an academic reading on divorce and marriage. That's not what we're here to do today. We're here to care for your souls. We're here to care for your heart. And yes, we are here to instruct your mind from God's word. So we want you to know that. We I've been praying for you all week, those of you in particular for whom this hits home in a very personal way. There's been divorce in your family background. You have been divorced. There's, there's just a, a weightiness that comes with that. We know that. We know that. And we trust that God, through the power of his spirit, will enable you to hear his word today, receive what you need to receive from him uh, and what is true. Now, we just sang, we will wait for the Lord, and on his word we will what? We will rely. So we trust that everything God's word tells us is truth, yes? It's truth, and if it's hard for us to hear, it doesn't make it any less true. We also trust that when God says that his kindness leads us to repentance, that that's exactly who God is. We trust that when God's word says that he comforts us in all of our affliction, like a good father, that's exactly what he does, that he comforts us. We trust that when God's word says he disciplines the children he loves, that that's true. Would you agree? All these things are true according to God's word. One of the other reasons this is challenging and weighty is because there are so many different approaches we could take here as we look at these, these two verses. I mean, two verses, that's it today, uh, and how they sort of fit within the context of all these other scriptures that speak to marriage and divorce and remarriage. And there's, you know, I, I could probably rightly spend the whole time just talking about how do we invest in our marriages, 
because one of the main things we're going to see Jesus is trying to say is that it's his intention and God's intention that our marriages would last for a lifetime. There are exceptions for divorce, but the, but the intention is that your marriage would last for your whole life. So how do you invest in your marriage? How do you pour into it? And some of you are in that place where your marriage is struggling right now. I mean, can I just say, one of the things we've seen with COVID is that it's, it has revealed a lot about our marriages about their soft spots, about their underbellies, about places where there's, there's some work needed. It's revealed that. And can I just beg you, please do not let what COVID has revealed go back underground as we kind of come out of this season. We are preparing in the fall to launch a new marriage ministry, and it's gonna have three pathways to it. Prepare, a prepare pathway, an enrich pathway, and a restore pathway. And I am really excited about the, the amount of things you're going to start to see come forward and opportunities be presented to you throughout the year to enrich your marriages where that's what's needed, to prepare for those of you maybe who are engaged, you're single, you're dating, some opportunities to prepare your mind around a theology of marriage and around just the practicalities of how to get ready for this thing called marriage, right? And, this, and then the restore pathway is, I think you're going to find for those of you who uh, this season, or maybe longer than this season, has been revealing some things about, man, this marriage is not what God intends it to be. It's not, this is not the version of this. And it's maybe, I recognize some things in myself or my spouse, there's some things going on there and there's reasons for that. We wanna walk with you in that. We wanna walk with you in that. So, the myriad of approaches we could take here, that's, that's part of the challenge. Can I say to you, I know that here's what's gonna happen. Here's the other challenge. I'm gonna start preaching about marriage and divorce and, you're, and particularly if you've been divorced, if you are remarried, uh, if your parents have been divorced, you're gonna be asking the question, what does this say about my specific situation? You're gonna say, is Trent condemning my situation or is he affirming my situation? Did I have biblical grounds? Did I not have biblical grounds? That's what you're going to do. Can I tell you that there are too many situations for me to address every single one of them? I've been in ministry long enough to know there are almost as many situations around divorce and remarriage as there are marriages. So what I wanna give you today is some, I, I hope, good, the broad biblical principles around divorce and, well, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, that then take a lot of wisdom to apply into every specific circumstance. So I'm probably not going to address, I mean, I, I could, just in my years of ministry, I could run through countless scenarios that have come you know, into my office. Well, this has happened. The spouse has cheated, but he's repentant. So then do I, can I still get divorced? Or if he's repentant and, and wants to stay married, do I have to stay in that? Or what do I do if it's, I'm a believing spouse and I've got an unbelieving spouse and this happened? And the scenarios are endless. So what I want to give you is, is just what the scriptures teach. And we're gonna look at these two verses, but then we've gotta tie them in to some other texts that help us round out what the scriptures are teaching fully on this subject. So here's another challenge of what we're about to do is that I need your brain to be on, all right? Like engage, but not in a way that the heart is just like, this is like an academic exercise, so the heart is disconnected from it. So we're gonna deal with an emotionally weighty subject that is also gonna require your mind to be really engaged, okay? Can we do that? Yeah, God, God enables us to do that. We can, heart and mind are not separated from one another. Praise God for that, all right? No one is, uh, 
I'm not even a Star Trek fan, but who's the Spock? No one's Spock, right? Does that reference make any sense? All mine, no heart. All right, very good. All right, Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna talk about marriage. What is this passage and the scriptures at large teach us about marriage? What does it teach us about divorce? What does it teach us about remarriage? Those three things, that's our outline for today, all right? So the first, marriage. Let's look at Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Two verses. Really simple, right? Really straightforward. But there's some things that we immediately notice about that that are interesting kind of turns. Like when Jesus says, if you divorce your wife, husband, you've made her commit adultery. Well, that's, a, that's an odd thing to say. Why are you saying you've made her commit adultery? And if you marry a divorced woman, then you've committed adultery. And we're gonna round that out a little bit with Mark 10 and Matthew 19 so we can kind of understand what Jesus is getting at. But let's back up the truck here for a second and remember the, the sort of section that we're in of scripture. Always remember, place, don't pull things out of their context. Place them in the scriptures where they belong. So, Remember that we've been coming after Matthew 5.20. Jesus said in verse 20 of this Sermon on the Mount, I tell you the truth, unless you have a righteousness greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's been arguing, we saw what he meant by that is, you have to have a righteousness that goes beyond skin deep. You have to have a righteousness that's better than just doing the right actions. Your heart is what matters most. And we've seen that in each of these six sections following that verse, right, we're in the third of those sections, we've seen that in each one, what Jesus is doing is addressing our hearts. And he says, you've heard it said, don't do this. But I tell you, and he's giving essentially an interpretation of the Old Testament, an interpretation of the law, and saying, this is what it really means to live out this command of God, to have your heart look this way, not that way. And he's doing the same thing here, which is why we find him saying, as he does here, you have heard it said, here he says, it was also said. In other words, this is what the scribes and the Pharisees taught. Now let me tell you what I'm going to teach. And what I'm gonna teach you is gonna be the true heart of God's intention in this area, in this subject. He's gonna do the same thing here. He's gonna teach us God's intention as it relates to marriage and divorce and remarriage. And he's gonna say to us, again, it's the heart that matters most. Now, when he says, You've, the, the scribes and Pharisees, they've taught this, and what did he say? If you divorce your wife, give her a certificate of divorce. Well, where does that come from? That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses one through four. So if you're jotting down notes, jot down Deuteronomy 24, one to four. And this is the interpretation that the scribes and Pharisees gave of this verse. They said, these verses tell us that we can divorce our spouse, our, in particular husbands divorcing wives, that would have been the normal direction of it in this time, right, and in this culture. Husbands, you can divorce your wives and you can really do it for any reason as long as you give her a certificate of divorce. In other words, a piece of paper that says, I have divorced her, and that frees her then to marry someone else. In this culture and day and age, a woman would have needed a husband to provide for her in the economic system and fabric in which they existed. So marriage became this really important, not just sort of um, love relationship, but there was, an, there was an economic need that came to that in particular 
for women. So listen now, this is what they were teaching. Deuteronomy 24, one to four, I'm gonna read it for you. And you're gonna understand, I'm gonna share with you, that there are two schools of thought that develop out of this text in the law. The Hillel school and the Shammai school. Those are just fun words, so everybody say Hillel. And then say Shammai. Shammai's a good word, all right? If you ever want with your kids, Shema means here. It's the Hebrew word for here. So if, you, if your kids are ever like not listening, just yell Shema at them. And then they'll be so confused that they'll stop. But it's also accurate because you're saying, listen to me. All right? So listen, here's, here's what Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4 says. These two schools of thought, Hillel and Shammai. And Hillel says, you can divorce husbands, you can divorce your wife for any reason. If she, if she does something you don't care for, just give her a certificate of divorce, you can be done. The Shammai school says, no, there's only one reason you can get divorced, and that's sexual immorality. So Jesus, in Matthew 5, you see which, which school is he siding with? The Shammai school. He's saying, no, this is the correct understanding. Hillel school, you're wrong. And so he's dealing with this Hillel school way of thinking that says you can divorce your spouse for any reason. Now listen to Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. There's the key phrase, some indecency. That's where the division happened. What does that phrase mean? If you found some indecency in her, is that any reason, Hillel school? Or is that referring to specifically some sexual immorality that took place perhaps adultery that took place. If I find that, then I'm justified. Now he says, then some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. All right, now you and I read that and that sounds very out of step with our day and age. Would you agree with that? You read and you're like, what, what, is, this, what is all this talk? Here's the, here's the thing that you need to understand about this law in Deuteronomy chapter 24. It's actually written as a protection for women in Jewish culture. It's written as a protection that they might not just be divorced for any possible reason. And that's why Jesus is citing when this idea of some indecency, you've got this Hillel school, which is essentially just looking to justify any grounds for divorce. And you've got the Shammai school, which is saying, no, no, this is actually supposed to be limiting divorce. The Shammai school is right. That's what Jesus is saying. This law is in place so that husbands are not just saying, ah, I'm tired of you, divorcing you, and leaving you destitute. So this then second thing that happens here, he gives a parameter, some indecency. In other words, there has to be a, a really strict grounds for divorce to take place. That's a protective mechanism for wives in particular in this day and age. Then when he says, you must give her a certificate of divorce, what he's doing is protecting her by saying, you can't leave her without some evidence that she is legally divorced so that she might then have an opportunity to be married again and brought into another family, brought into another husband. You can't do that. You have to provide that certificate of divorce. 
Now that may sound formulaic, but it's actually a protection in the system. And then lastly, the whole thing about, hey, if you divorce her, she marries someone else, he dies or divorces her, you can't then bring her back as your wife. In other words, what the law is there, and we're gonna see more about why this law is here. Jesus is gonna talk about it in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. But understand that he's saying, you can't just sort of treat marriage this lightly. Where it's like, okay, I divorced her, I'll take her back, we'll just kinda come and go. You can't yank her around in that way. So there are these protections that the law is providing. We'll see why it's providing those in just a moment. But here's, as it relates to marriage, Here's what I want you to understand that Jesus is teaching. When he then says, you've heard it said, or it was also said, just give your wife a certificate of divorce and you're good, like you've met the standard of the law. That's what the Pharisees are teaching you. And I'm telling you then, if you do that, you force her into an adulterous relationship. In other words, if there weren't grounds for this divorce, you are now pushing her into a marriage because she needs to be married economically to be provided for. You're pushing her into a situation that is unfair and unjust and actually a marriage that shouldn't exist because this first one never should have dissolved. Listen to me, friends. He's not blaming the wife for the adultery. He's saying you've pushed her into a situation. You're to blame, husband, for putting her in the situation where now she has to be in this relationship that should have never existed. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying if the, if the marriage was never had grounds to end, then the next one can't begin in a way that is right and good. And we're gonna come to that when we come to the remarriage part. So here's the, the heart of the whole thing in verse 31 and 32. Jesus is saying God intends for your marriage to last for your entire life. God intends for your marriage to last for your entire life. Now, let's look at, he says it in Mark 10. I wanna, I wanna bring you to Mark 10 now and show you this text. Now, here, you can make a note of this. Matthew 19 First handful of verses in Matthew 19. Mark 10, verses one to nine. And Luke 16, kind of in the middle of the chapter, Luke just has like two verses there. These verses all are dealing with the same moment in Jesus' life. So Jesus is being questioned about something and he responds. And the way Matthew and Mark and Luke all record it is a little different. It's consistent but it's different aspects. It would be like if you and I told the story of, like, actually, if you walk out of here today, here's what's gonna happen. Somebody's gonna ask, how was church today? And you might say, well, this thing happened or that thing happened, right? Trent said this, and then this person over here is gonna say, well, Trent said this. And you're both gonna, well, hopefully you're gonna say what I actually said and not make stuff up, right? You will, I know, you guys, right? But you probably wouldn't give the exact same summary, right? You probably wouldn't give the exact, you, you might tell the story from your vantage point. And a little bit of the same thing with what Matthew and Mark and Luke are doing. Now listen to Mark 10 as Jesus gives us some teaching about marriage. Verses one through nine. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. All right, so he's teaching these crowds up in this further, further region here. And Pharisees came up. And in order to test him, so in other words, they're not interested in what he really thinks. They're just gonna test him and see where he's at, see if they can find any grounds to accuse him. So their hearts are not right. In order to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So they're testing him on Deuteronomy 24. You see it? So what are you gonna say about Deuteronomy 24, Jesus? 
Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? Because Jesus is amazing and brilliant, great teacher, does what every great teacher should do. He answers a question with a question. He answered them, what did Moses command you? And don't you know that they were all like, you stinker. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So that's what Deuteronomy 24 says. Now look what Jesus does. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now see the brilliance of this. They come to test him, and they say to Jesus, what's, what's the law say about this, and what do you say? What's your interpretation? Are you Hillel school or are you Shammai school, right? They're, they're testing him. And he asked them their question, well, what do you see written there? They give kind of a very blah explanation. Yeah, certificate of divorce, and then we're good. And Jesus doesn't just go back to Deuteronomy. He goes back to Genesis. And he says, now, listen to me, friends. The reason that law is on the books is because you guys are a bunch of sinners, and you ruin everything. You have hard hearts, and so God put protective measures in place in the law to prevent your sin from running crazy over people. To prevent the absolute destruction that your wickedness brings about. God put that law in place. That's what I mean when he said, this is actually there to protect these wives. You must give a certificate of divorce. You can't just divorce for any reason. There has to be legitimate grounds. But let me point you to what God really wants you to understand it's not that you would be looking for what are the grounds upon which I might do this thing. From the beginning, God made them male and female, and because he made a man and a woman, therefore, it tells us a lot about how we should define marriage, therefore, he brought them together in a one flesh union. It's the fact that when we look back, Jesus says, at Genesis and into the garden, and we see he made a man and he made a woman. And what are we supposed to learn from that? That he designed this thing called marriage, this man and this woman, to come together and to, and to do something, to produce something, to show something. And we call the thing he made them for marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become, what was the word there? It's the most important phrase, one flesh. One flesh, he says it twice, actually, in this Mark 10 passage. Now, friends, here's what I want you to understand. What Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, is he's saying God intends for your marriage to last for your entire lifetime. And he's showing us that more clearly in Mark 10, if you will, where he's getting a little more intentional, saying you wanna talk about the grounds upon which you can get divorced? Hold on. I want to talk to you about what your marriage should be like. I want to talk to you about how great marriage is. I want to talk to you about how you should fight for it and sustain it and strengthen it, how you should be for it, not looking for the way out, but looking how to say, how do I make this work? How do I, how do I invest in it? How do I pour my life into it? 
That's what Jesus is getting at. Now, can I say, because we, we could just spend the rest of the time, as I already said, just talking about, I could go now Ephesians 5, and we could just like, what husbands love your wife as Christ loves the church? Let's talk about that for a minute. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. I could go to 1 Peter chapter three and I could say, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. If you want your prayers to be heard by the Lord, lest your spiritual life be hindered, you better live with your spouse, your wife, in a way that says, I'm understanding and gracious, not harsh. We could spend all our time just talking about how do we invest in our marriages, right? We could talk about date nights and make sure you get the kids a sitter and we could talk about, you know, all this kind of stuff. Here's, here's what I want to say to you. We don't understand a good theology of marriage unless we understand what he means when he says you have a one flesh union with each other. This is the most important thing to grasp from today. One flesh union. Now, obviously, one of the things he's referring to there is sexual union with your spouse. Marriage is sealed by sexual union. That's, what, that's how we seal our marriage. And by the way, can I say, one of the important reasons for a healthy sexual intimacy in your marriage, a mutuality in that, an interest in that together, a not withholding from one another, an active pursuit of that, a communication in that. One of the reasons is you don't just seal your covenant with sex, you renew it with sex every time. Every time you're intimate with your spouse, you're renewing your covenant. You're saying it's you and me and no one else. You and me and no one else. Isn't that a beautiful picture God intends that, that vulnerability, that intimacy. Now listen, there's more though with a, this idea of a one flesh union than just sexual intimacy. When God says the two shall become one flesh, he's saying you are so uh, to be united with one another that to be divorced would be like splitting a person in two, like drawing and quartering someone. That's what divorce is. That's why it's so painful, Yes. It's painful because you have a one flesh union and you're literally ripping a person apart. Now the thing I see again and again in marriages that begin to struggle is that we don't understand, and I'll say probably husbands, maybe more than wives, the kind of emotional vulnerability that we're supposed to have with someone with whom we're one flesh. I see again and again in marriages where we come and we give 90%. We say, but there's this 10% that's like, I, I'm not gonna talk about that with my spouse. I'm not going to bring that up. I'm not, I'm, I'm just, that's too much. It, it produces fear in us. And friends, anyone who says to you that when you get married, you know, like you make a covenant with your spouse and then it's just gonna be really easy to be vulnerable is lying to you. It's hard to be vulnerable, yes? It's hard to be vulnerable. It's hard to say, here's my biggest fears. Here are the things I am, you know, like really want my life to be about. Here are the things that I just continue to struggle with. And I just see again and again that there's this withholding of that last 10%. And part of that, part of that is a failure to understand theologically what God made marriage for that it's a one flesh union. Now, again, without going too far down this road, can I just say, biblically there are two reasons God made marriage, two, right? And it, there's a lot of byproducts. Families, children, th these are all really good things, but they're actually not the primary purpose of marriage. The primary purpose of marriage is two things. Number one is to reveal the nature of God himself, 
And number two is to reveal what the relationship between Christ and his church is like. That's it. Everything else is downstream from those two. Now let me tell you what I mean here when it comes to you know, marriage and divorce. When we say that marriage exists to display the nature of God, here's another reason why marriage is between men and women and not two men and not two women, is because God is unity with diversity. He is one God with three persons. We call that the Trinity, yes? And so when God said, let us make man in our image, or humankind in our image, he made a man and a woman, both image bearers of his. And then he brought them together in marriage as a way of saying, this is what I'm like. I am one God, one flesh union, inseparable. I am inseparably one. And yet, I am three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. From eternity past to eternity future, God unchanging is always God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God and three persons. And he makes marriage as a demonstration of his very nature. You two different beings are going to come together in a one flesh union so that the world might see my very nature through that. Does that make sense? Do you see it? So when he says you are a one flesh union, what he's saying is you exist to show the world what I am like in your marriage. That's why you have it. These two distinct, not just two individuals, but like a man and a woman. Can we say amen to we are not alike? (laughs) We think different, we feel different, we act different, and that's the beauty of it. Unity brought in diversity. Now, That idea of a one flesh union means at the very least this. So if if it's the nature of God that's supposed to be on display, then can you see that when I leave that marriage, when I break that one flesh union with no grounds, without without correct biblical grounds, it's painful even with grounds, yes? Deeply hurtful, deeply painful. But when I leave it without biblical grounds, what I am doing is essentially denying that God in his nature is who he is. And friends, you and I exist to display and glorify God. That's why we exist. This is why our marriages are supposed to last a lifetime. That's what he's trying to teach us about marriage. Which means that when you enter into a marriage, there can be no hint of thought in going into it that, well, if this just doesn't work, then I'll just call it. You can't even have that slip into your mind when you enter into marriage. I was reading this week, I saw a a mom writing to her adult children who had had friends going through divorces and struggling with different choices. And she wrote a letter to her adult son and and his siblings. And I just thought it was really, I just wanted to share it with you because I thought it was wisdom from a mother. It's like Proverbs 31, wisdom from a mother to her son. Listen to what she said. She said, I pray for you, my children, that you will all see with the eyes of eternity that through the trials and tribulations of life, specifically marriage, you will never have the shade of a doubt that from all eternity, God planned for you to be with the one you have pledged to be faithful to. Guard your hearts and never allow the slightest strain of, well, maybe, or what if, to enter your minds your unconditional commitment to your marriage based on a total conviction of God's sovereignty and bringing you together is its greatest strength. You hear that? 
That's wisdom. That's a mother saying to her son, the greatest strength of your marriage is not your faithfulness, not your compatibility, not that you guys like the same movies. Greatest strength of your marriage is not that you're great at like, you know, reading the Bible together every day. That's really good. Do that, right? He's saying the greatest strength of your marriage is the absolute conviction that God has brought you together for a lifetime. Never let anyone convince you otherwise about your marriage. Don't listen. One of the things I see, friends, is, is there are too many Christians who have taken the perspective of the world on this. And when you go to them for advice, when you're struggling in your marriage, the advice they give you sounds a lot like the advice of the world. Well, are you happy? Well, I mean, you know, it kind of seems like you might be better off. That's bad advice. You need people in your life that say God has brought you together to be in covenant faithfulness for one another. Don't let go of that. You need those people to speak into your life. All right, so we've got to stop there on the marriage part. We could just keep going and going and going, but we're going to stop there. Now let's turn our attention to what is Jesus teaching us about divorce in this passage? Because he does have something to teach us about divorce in this passage. So I'm going to give you a couple principles here. So the first thing that we should note as we look at these verses, Matthew 5, 31, 32, the first thing we should note is that Jesus permits divorce, yes, but he never requires it. Jesus permits divorce, but he never requires it. Now, I say that for two reasons. One, because in the Jewish world, there were actually some teaching that said, if this thing happens, then you must get divorced. It was required. And Jesus is clearly never requiring divorce. The second reason I say it is this. It's not to bring any shame if you have brought, been in the situation where your spouse has broken covenant with you and you've made the gut-wrenching decision to have to be divorced. It's not to, it's not to add shame to say, hey, you didn't, you didn't have to do that, but it is to reinforce Jesus' first point, which is that he wants our marriages to last a lifetime, and where we fight for our marriage to, to every degree that we can, we need to see that God is so glorified in that. He is, he's so glorified in when it's on the brink or when it seems beyond the brink, and we don't stop. I've told you this before, but, you know, man and I told each other right, right out of the gate, we just said, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, I'm gonna keep coming after you. And friends, that's, that's what I want you to see. Jesus permits it, does not require it. Now, the second thing, Jesus permits divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality. Now, the word there for sexual morality is the word porneia. And when you hear porneia, you probably can recognize what word that leads to in the English language or what words we derive from that, right? So now it's a broader term. Probably Jesus has in mind here adultery specifically because he's talking about, in this context, husbands and wives. And adultery is probably foremost on his mind. But one of the things we need to see here is that porneia, ESV, does a great job of translating this because they don't just translate it adultery because the term is broader than that. It's a term for different types of sexual immorality. It encompasses a number of sexually immoral practices, not just cheating on your spouse. So we're gonna see here in a moment that one of the implications of that, if Jesus does in fact allow for broader reasons for divorce than perhaps just adultery, that one of the things we can see there is this use of this term porneia 
lends to the idea, the understanding that there could be, in particular in the sexual realm, practices perhaps other than adultery that would, that would amount to breaking covenant with our spouse. And I'm not gonna be lewd and, and go in detail about what those would be, but you can imagine that there would be sexual practices that would come into place that would be committed that are not specifically adultery, although we just heard about lust with our eyes and how that you know, amounts to adultery. And so you can imagine that there would be sexual practices that would be tantamount to breaking covenant in the way adultery is breaking covenant. And that those would be grounds, permissible grounds, biblically, for divorce. Now, the third thing, the third thing, oh, actually, let, sorry, let me pause there, because I want to make sure I do something here. I try to regularly return to a good theology of marriage and a good theology of sex, because I just think most Christians have a really bad, have bad teaching on this. And it leads to this idea that, like, you know, intimacy is icky and we get into our marriages and we just don't see the need for healthy sexual intimacy and those kinds of things. But I also want you to understand something. It also leads to you guys living with each other before you're married and all that kind of stuff. And friends, I'm not afraid to call you out on that. Stop doing that. It's sin. And most of you listen to the ways of the world and go, oh, well, no, it's okay. It's just we're engaged, so it's, it's not okay. You're setting yourself up for failure. I love you enough to tell you to stop doing that. Now listen. The other thing you need to understand is theologically why adultery is a problem. Here's why adultery is a problem. It, it's sort of intuitive in our minds. Yeah, I'm cheating on my spouse. I shouldn't be doing that. Like, I, I get that hurt them and it was unfaithful. But the reason, friends, go back to what I said about the reason marriage exists, to display the nature of God. Now, when I break covenant, when, I, when I'm adulterous, when I go and I'm intimate with somebody who's not my spouse, what, what that is is essentially is, is a denial of what God said marriage is in the first place. It's like saying, it would, I mean, if you can imagine this, and this, of course, it, it would never transpire, but imagine if one of the members of the Godhead said, I don't want to be in this union any longer, I'm out. That's the equivalent, that's what adultery is the equivalent of. If my marriage, diversity within unity, is meant to display the very nature of God, it would be equivalent to me breaking that and going over here in an adulterous relationship. And in doing that, what I'm saying is, God, this is why you made marriage, and I deny your very nature in what I do now. Make sense? I'm denying the nature of God when I do that. It's not just that I'm being unfaithful to a person, it's that I have committed a, an atrocious act of denying God's nature in and of himself. You need to understand that at a theological level. That's why it's an issue. Sins are never sins just because of how they affect people on a horizontal level. Sins are sins because they are an offense to God. And then because they, yes, they wound people. And those wounds are real. And they really call for repentance. Now, so we see he gives this idea of adultery, sexual immorality as grounds for divorce. Now, is there, are there other grounds biblically? Yeah, there's one other very clear ground, and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and it's this. It's uh, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. 1 Corinthians 7 says this, verse 12 through 15. It says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now, there, that doesn't undo the authority of this text. Paul's just saying the stuff he said right before this, Jesus had verbally spoken and now he's saying, with the Holy Spirit inspiring him to write it, he's saying, this is what I tell you, but it's Holy Scripture and it's authoritative. 
It says, to the rest I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and she consents to live, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. That's a key word. God has called you to peace. All right, so get what's happening here. Let me give you a little context. The Corinthian church, there's all these brand new believers. Of course, these are the first believers, like in the world, right, that have ever existed in history. And so one of the questions they ask is, I'm married, I've come to faith in Christ, my spouse has not, and I'm now, I'm a whole new person, I'm a new creation, I, I belong to a new thing called the church, and I belong to Jesus, does that mean I need to cut my ties, including my marriage, with unbelievers? Is that what I should do? And Paul's response is to say, no, no, no. You have an unbelieving spouse who's willing to keep you as their spouse, stay in that marriage. Did you see that? So that's what he's saying. But then he goes on from there, and the, the whole thing about you might make them, you know, an unbelieving spouse is made whole, he doesn't mean they're saved by virtue of being married to a believer. He means to say there will be opportunity for influence towards holiness because there's now a spouse in the picture who loves the Lord and is washed from their sins by the blood of Jesus, and there's work that God will do in your marriage through that. He'll work through you in your marriage. He'll work through you in the lives of your kids. That's what he's talking about there. Then he says, but if your spouse leaves you, that unbelieving, the spouse who doesn't believe, doesn't share our faith, if they leave, you're not enslaved. In other words, you're not still bound to them. You are not in the position now of what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, where you're forced to commit adultery because they've left you. He says there's justifiable reason for divorce, not that the unbelieving spouse had, but that you have as the one who's been left, who's been abandoned. Everybody follow that? So throughout the history of the church, the Protestant church in particular, these have always been the two grounds that the church has pointed to for divorce. Now there's some who argue that there are actually no grounds for divorce and that some of this is about just when they're betrothed, not when they're actually married. I don't have the time to go into all that. There's a lot of folks I really respect who hold that position. I think it's wrong. I just don't think the context lends itself to that. Now, the history of the church, the Protestant church, is that the church has always taught that marriage was permissible on these two grounds, sexual morality and abandonment. Now, then the question becomes, are there any other possible grounds? Are there any possible grounds? And here's my answer to that. Yes, but be very careful. Yes, but be very careful. Here's what I think. I think Jesus, in teaching us in these passages, in Mark, what we saw in Mark 10, I don't think he's intending to give the one and only exception because he doesn't list abandonment as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 7. So if he were trying to list all of them, I would trust that having inspired Paul to write it in 1 Corinthians 7, he would have also said it when he talks about it. I think what he's giving us is the principle. Marriage should, I'm sorry, divorce should be exceedingly rare. There are very few grounds upon which marriage is upon which divorce is justified. I was gonna say marriage is justified. (laughs) There are very few grounds upon which divorce is justified. So when I say yes, you can imagine, and again, this is the broad principles that have, need a lot of wisdom. Because I can't tell you how many situations, I mean, what would you do in this situation? Do you permit divorce when this has happened or that has happened or this, you know, situations of significant abuse? Yeah, I mean, just the, 
the numerous, numerous difficult situations. So I don't think Jesus is intending here to say this is, this is the one and only ground. I do know some that say that. I think he's intending to say the principle is that marriage should be exceedingly rare. Be very cautious about expanding the reasons for divorce broadly. Which is like, well, okay, this counts as abandonment. They're kind of emotionally not everything I want them to be, so that's abandonment, I'm out. You should be very cautious about that, exceeding cautious. And, and let me say one more thing then on this as it relates to divorce. This is why God has called elders to shepherd and lead and govern the church. One of the places that we most often have enacted church discipline is when spouses leave their spouse without biblical grounds. That is by far the most common place where we are forced into a situation of exercising church discipline and excommunicating somebody from the body. It's painful every time and we hate it. Sin is destructive. But we must follow God's word and protect the body. And so we do it, but we hate it. Far better to when your marriage is on the rocks and you're considering divorce or perhaps, friend, you feel like you have biblical grounds for divorce to come to your elders, seek us out, have a conversation with us. It takes a lot of discernment, but that's what elders are present in the church and governing the church for, is to help you in that discernment and to speak to whether something counts as biblical grounds or not. That's a weighty responsibility. But friends, listen. Elders of the church give an account before God as those who are the shepherds and overseers of your souls. We will stand before God and he will judge us on how well we shepherded you. Sobering place to be, but it is the role of elders in the church. And you should never make a decision about divorce or remarriage without the elders of your church speaking into it. That would be my admonition to you. Biblical, godly counsel. Now, let me, let me speak one more thing on divorce then we wanna turn to remarriage. The last thing here is, and I'm only gonna be able to hit this in a very quick way, one of the questions you'll find as you read through, like if you were to go home today and say, okay, I'm gonna read the, the other passages. I read the Mark 10 passage to you. And then there's the Matthew 19 passage and the Luke 16 passage, which are parallel, I said. It's the same moment in Jesus' life. And in Matthew 19, Jesus gives the grounds of sexual immorality as a reason for divorce. He says you can get divorced for sexual immorality. In Mark 10 and in Luke 16, he does not. He doesn't list any grounds for divorce. So the question becomes, this is the same moment why, is he, why does Matthew have it, but Mark and Luke do not? Here's the answer to that question, I believe, right? It's not that Matthew added something that Jesus didn't say, right? That would be to bring the scripture uh, and the authority of the scripture under question. What it is is this, is that in Jewish culture, it was already widely accepted that sexual immorality was grounds for divorce. So it was assumed. That's what everyone listening would have assumed. Jesus said it, so Matthew records it and gives it to us. Mark and Luke choose not to give that portion of what he said to us because it was already assumed by all their listeners. So they didn't feel the need to list it because it would have already been understood. Does that make sense? That's why you find the difference in the telling of this story. Mark and Luke wanna focus their attention on other parts of what Jesus said. Matthew wants to make sure to include the permission for divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality. 
So now let's ask the question about remarriage. So we've seen what Jesus teaches. There's grounds for divorce that are permissible, although very rare. We've seen what he teaches about marriage as a one flesh union and our, the intention of that. Now we come to the question of can we be remarried if we've been divorced? And what we find here, the first thing we just have to say in verse 31 and 32 that we're looking at in Matthew 5 is that it's very clear that Jesus is saying it's an adulterous relationship that you enter into if you didn't have biblical grounds for divorce. When he says, if you, if you get remarried or you force your wife to remarry by giving her a certificate of divorce when there wasn't sexual immorality, when there wasn't grounds, when you do that, you force her into a marriage that should have never existed and therefore is adulterous in nature. So the first thing that we have to see about remarriage is that where, there's not, where there weren't biblical grounds for divorce, there are no biblical grounds for remarriage. Second thing is listen to how Mark says it. I didn't read this part of the Mark 10 passage. He says it a little bit more cleanly than, than maybe the Matthew 5 where he's focused more on how the protection of women in the situation. Mark says it this way, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. In other words, what Mark is saying there is the person who initiates the divorce when there's no biblical grounds is the person who's guilty the person who's committing the sin and doing the thing that they shouldn't do. Now, it does seem that, let me say the opposite of what I just said, if there are no biblical grounds, then remarriage is not an open possibility. If there are biblical grounds, then it does seem Jesus allows for remarriage as a biblical possibility, that remarriage is valid at that point. Let me show you where I take that. Matthew 19, the passage I said that's parallel to the Mark 10 passage. Here's what verse nine of that text says. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So we've kind of seen that phrasing. But listen, most likely, just the, this is the exciting grammatical structure of it, right? The grammatical structure here is such that what we understand is that when Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and then he gives except for sexual immorality, that that exception clause applies to both the phrases whoever divorces his wife as well as applying to the phrase and marries another so we could say it this way whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and whoever marries another except for sexual immorality commits adultery in other words what he's saying is if there were biblical grounds for divorce then remarriage is a valid possibility is a valid action also likely that in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, when I said the, the unbelieving spouse has abandoned the believing spouse, and then he says in verse 15, let them go, essentially. It's okay. It's not on you that they have left. And then he says, you are not enslaved. Most likely, the best way to understand that phrasing, most commentators think and theologians think, the best way to understand that is to say, he's saying you're not held into that marriage as if you can't marry another. You're not enslaved to them in the sense that you now are still beholden to them as if you are not free to move forward into another marriage. That's probably what that phrasing enslaved means there. So this is just a couple of examples, and it seems likely that what the principle that's being taught is that if marriage, if the divorce, if the marriage ends in divorce and there were biblical grounds for it, then the remarriage is also valid. Now let me... Give a couple points of application. 
The, first, let's, let's ask this question because we're talking about remarriage. The question is immediately, on, I know, on some of your minds is this, is what if I didn't have biblical grounds for divorce and so I should have never remarried? That's what I'm telling you right now. And you're asking yourself, well, what do I do? Does that mean I should leave the marriage that I'm in and like go back to my first spouse and try to figure that out? And here's, here's what I think is the best practice here. I think the principle of 1 Corinthians 7, which Paul is saying, when you realize, he's talking about when you first come into faith, and he's saying stay in the situation that you're in. In other words, don't leave the marriage that you're in. Don't leave that behind as if that's the right course of action. I think that same principle can be applied here to say if you got divorced on unbiblical grounds and therefore then you remarried and that marriage is, it doesn't mean you're still married in the eyes of God to your first spouse. You haven't been divorced. You have been remarried. You shouldn't have done it. But my counsel to you is stay in your marriage. Stay in the marriage that you are in and trust God to move forward his hand of blessing upon that marriage. This is the grace of God that we can go down that path and he can still bring blessing. But let me tell you what's required. There's required of you an acknowledgement that what you did was sin. Confession before the Lord and repentance before him. Crying out and running to the cross and saying, bring forgiveness. What I did was wrong. And can I also say, there may be an ex-spouse that you need to go seek forgiveness from. There may be kids that you need to go ask forgiveness from. You can't return to that first marriage. But what you can do is seek to make it right to every degree possible that you can. Now, I know that's weighty and that's challenging, but that's what needs to be done. To the degree that it's possible in your power to do that. My counsel to you is do not imagine that what, even though that remarriage was not valid in the sense that you had grounds biblically, I don't believe the scripture's counsel to you is to say then to leave that marriage as well and then compound the situation. But you see the complexity that sin creates, yes? When original purposes and designs get wrecked, everything gets real wonky real fast. couple of application points then beyond that. Number one, if you're married, fight for your marriage. If you are married, fight tooth and nail for your marriage. Do everything you can. If you've been divorced without cause, if you've been divorced without cause and you're not remarried, can I say to you, could you imagine the glory that would be God's if you pursued reconciliation with your spouse? What prevents it? What long labor might you be able to do that would lead to the restoration and reconciliation of that marriage? And friends, can I say to you by way of counsel, if you're divorced without biblical grounds, you may not remarry. Stay single. If you can't restore your original marriage, stay single. Trust God. He will walk with you. Seek restoration if you can. If you're the one who was left, cheated on, if your spouse committed adultery against you, can I say to you, we want to walk with you. We want to walk with you if you're the one that was the cause of it too, by the way. But in particular, if you're the one that was wounded, please don't hear anything that I would say to you today as in any way trying to heap shame upon you. You should never feel shame in this church for sin committed against you. 
We want to protect you. We want to come beside you. We want you to feel the love and the grace and the mercy of God. We, we want to walk with you in it. In none of this, when you have been sinned against, should you feel the culpability of that. And then the last counsel I will give, friends, is what I've already said, is that if you are remarried and you know you didn't have biblical grounds for divorce, I think what the scripture calls you to is, again, not to leave the marriage that you're in, but to seek forgiveness from the Lord Come to him with a brokenness and contrite heart. That's what Psalm 51 says. A broken and contrite spirit the Lord does not despise. Praise God for that. When we come to him in brokenness and contrition, he receives us. And friends, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Remarriage, when you didn't have biblical grounds, is not the unpardonable sin. The grace of God is big and sufficient, but it requires repentance. It requires confession. It requires coming and committing to a new way. And watch how merciful he is to even bless that second marriage, which he would have never validated in the first place. To watch him do that is a, is a testimony to the grace and power and the mercy of God. I hope you hear me, friends. I hope you hear me. Are we gonna come to the Lord's table now and receive the elements? And it's an appropriate day to do that. Um, worship team, come on up and we'll play. We come to these elements, I, I wanna remind you, our marriages, if we're in Christ, are founded upon the body and the blood represented in these elements. are founded upon and meant to display the greatness of Jesus in it. And so friends, let me encourage you now as we come to the table, two things. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we'll invite you to let these elements pass because we are proclaiming and are partaking. We are proclaiming that we believe and we wouldn't want you to proclaim that when that's not true. The second thing I wanna say is believers remember that 1 Corinthians 11 commands us of something and it's this. When we partake of these elements, we don't do so without examining ourselves. And what that means is we don't do so in such a way and it says if we do, we eat and drink judgment upon ourselves is the way Paul says it. We come in full expectation that as we partake of these elements for the, for, that they represent forgiveness of sins purchased for us on the cross of Jesus through his blood and his body sacrificed that we don't intend to just live any way that we want but that we intend to commit ourselves to obedience to the Lord in any place that he would show us in that examination that we are out of step with his ways that we would commit ourselves to walking in obedience. So we don't come to the table lightly because these elements represent the most precious gift that was ever given to you and to I or to anyone.